What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Presented by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live, this series is made possible by the fine folks at Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. Today we are talking with singer-songwriter Jason Isbell of Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit. They have a recent album out called Reunions, which has been getting fantastic reviews, calling the album elegant and a nuanced, probing record. Now, on the Going There podcast, our goal is to have tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, come out of the darkness, and get the care we need. And so Jason is talking with us about his struggle with alcoholism and the path that he has taken in his recovery. During our conversation, Jason shares his thoughts about a very important topic, which is how our social, economic, and political systems may influence our health and well-being. Unfortunately, when people try to understand their individual mental health, they often only look at their own thoughts, behaviors, and emotions, and perhaps their family or immediate environment. And those are certainly important places to begin on our journey towards improved mental health. But if we are going to truly tackle the mental health crisis on a public health level, we need to examine all of the complex factors that may have the potential to worsen or improve our well-being. And Jason articulates his views on how different economic and political systems may influence our sense of self-worth and the behaviors in which we engage that may be harmful. And we talk about some of the changes that we would need to make as a society to optimize rather than damage our mental health and well-being. So let's go there and listen to what Jason has to say. Jason, welcome to Going There. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. So we talked a little bit beforehand and, and we talked about just starting off with when you started using alcohol. Yeah, you know, I didn't, no, I didn't start early. Uh, um I pretty much behaved myself through high school. I think I was probably 18 or 19 before I drank anything or, or got drunk or anything. But it didn't really ratchet up for me until I was uh, on the road. You know, I went to college in Memphis and I, I drank at what I would consider to be probably a typical college level, you know, uh, uh, the occasional binge. But 
nothing that seemed to really stick. And then I got, I got in a band and, and went on tour and they were all heavy drinkers. And uh, it was an exhausting schedule that we had. We were out playing 200, 250 shows a year sometimes and uh, in a van and it was a lot of work. And um, I think probably it started partially because that's just the social situation that, that I was in, but also because I was physically exhausted and in a lot of pain and you know, had to get up on stage and perform. So that circle started happening where, you know, you drink all night and then you have to drink again to get back up and drink all night. And that, that was probably at 20, 20, 22, I guess, is when it really started getting getting pretty serious for me. You know, one of the things they'll say is that that HALT acronym, the hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, that those are all things that you really have to, you know, kind of keep keep track of when you're using and I'm just kind of curious, different people, alcohol does different things. When you're tired or maybe in pain, what did alcohol do for you that made you want to keep going back to it during that time? I think it convinced me that I was not tired or in pain. You know, it didn't actually alleviate those symptoms. Uh, it just slowed me down enough to where I didn't notice it, which meant that I had the opportunity to further damage myself. It's kind of like that town where nobody has, nobody can feel pain, you know? They don't have the, I don't know, something about their genetic code makes it impossible for them to feel, and they all walk around injuring themselves all day. It was like that, you know? It didn't actually fix anything. It just sort of made me think, well, I'm, I'm fine. I can get up and, and go play and go out after the show and stay up all night and do all these things over and over again. Everybody knows about the false confidence thing. I mean, you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof, they say. So it was a good way to convince myself that I felt okay. One of the things that I feel like working with people with substance abuse, that's a very big misconception is that a lot of people assume that people get into addictive patterns for something that's quote unquote bad, like they're depressed, they're anxious, oh, yeah. you know, and what you're talking about is a very common thing where the, the entry into this really isn't necessarily a dark entrance. I mean, you know, your life is going well, you're playing music and other people are drinking. So, you know, why not do something right. that just helps that, that positive vibe? Yeah, it wasn't dark at all at that point in time. You know, I, especially now in hindsight, looking back, I had, I had very few problems. Um, in my life. You know, I hadn't really, uh, didn't have a family yet and I wasn't uh, obligated to anybody or responsible for anyone other than myself. And, you know, I was talking to a friend recently who is in recovery and, and in the fairly early stages of it. And, and you know, he was saying, well, nothing's going wrong. I'm at the best spot of my life. You know, I'm happy. Uh, uh, my career's going well. I just, for some reason right now, I seem closer to relapsing than I did when things were terrible. And I said, we, you know, we have a system for when things are going bad. You know, you spend a lot of your time and a lot of your energy on figuring out what am I going to do when something happens that makes me sad or makes me lonely or, or, you know, how am I going to deal with grief without picking up a drink? We have those things. We work on those things through the process of getting sober and really through our whole lives, we work on how to deal with sadness and, and with depression and, you know, to varying degrees of success, but we don't really work on what to do when things are good. And, you know, it, it means that when you're looking to celebrate something or if, if you're just cruising through your life and, and not really having the kind of awareness you need to have, you know, sometimes that can be more treacherous than when you're in a situation where you wake up in the morning and think, okay, I know I need to do these three things to keep myself stable today. It's, it's tricky that way. 
you mentioned that concept of, of false confidence that I think is so tough for people to grasp is that, you know, when things are going well, generally speaking, they're also stressful. I mean, it's, it's a good kind of stress, you know, like, like as an example, you know, weightlifting is in theory, a good kind of stress because you're doing something that you're intentionally doing to improve yourself, but it's tearing yourself down and building yourself back up. And people, when they're doing well, you know, people are in relationships, their career is going well, they have a lot of friends, they're doing things for their community. It can really sneak through the idea that, you know, those things are still stressful. And that that false confidence that you're talking about, I think what winds up happening is you just don't notice how stressful you are. Like you said, you kind of just notice all the good stuff and you don't ever take that time to take care of yourself. Right. And the binary judgment of things, the, the black and white idea that this is a good development in my life and this is a bad development in my life is really dangerous in a lot of situations because, and I understand it's a shortcut, you know, it's, it's a shortcut to awareness to think, okay, this thing that happened is positive, that thing that happened is negative. But the same amount of pressure, of stress, of anxiety, of worry, of concern can be applied to something that is a positive development or a negative development, you know, just because uh, th this is great news doesn't mean that I'm not going to get myself completely gnarled up about it and, you know, spend a lot of my emotional energy on it. Sometimes bad news is easier to deal with than really, really good news that, that comes with a lot of requirements. Yeah. And, and part of the reason is, you know, you look at it even with, with physical conditions. People know that if you have a heart condition, right? Like I, I, a lot of the people I work with who are older, and they have, you know, maybe a heart condition or diabetes, you're, you're super careful about good things. Yeah. You know, don't, don't, Hey, Hey, don't, you know, you going to that extra party or biking that extra mile or stuff like that. You gotta be super careful about that. Like people kind of yeah. get the fact in that context that there's a, such a thing as, as good stress and stress is stress, but in mental health, Nobody says that, you know, nobody, nobody says like, oh, your life is so good. I don't understand why you have diabetes. And, you know, one of the things that I think happens is that the empathy goes away when people are doing well, and then you start struggling a little bit. I think people start being, what's your problem? Oh, right. you're, you're a rock star. Like everything's going great. Like, what, what are you going to complain? And that they, yeah, all of a sudden that that's that pivot. There's a whole you know, library of, of issues surrounding those particular emotions, because if you're somebody who has not always been successful and you find yourself in a successful position, then it's really easy to spend a lot of your time questioning what you deserve, you know, and, uh, you know, do you even deserve to have a bad day? And, you know, I try to stay grateful at all times. I try to make that sort of the framework of everything, but you can be super grateful and still be really pissed or really stressed or really sad. I, I try really hard to let myself feel those things, you know, because it's, it's, I have a tendency to say, well, why are you sad? Your life's going great. Well, I'm sad because something sad happened, you know, and I'm going to allow that to happen. And, and, you know, that's not, that's not being performatively sad, obviously, that's not putting it on display for everybody, but there's a certain level that you need. I think, you know, I had a hard day a few days ago and what had happened was I was, I was doing some work, uh, writing something about a friend of mine who uh, is a musician who I've toured with for a lot of years. And, and to, to recall some details and get sort of in the mind space, I went back and watched some videos of us all, you know, playing live years ago. And it just really, I mean, bottomed me out uh, because, you know, I just can't go play right now. And uh, obviously I have a lot of advantages and, and I have a 
pretty cushy life even in in quarantine but i can't go do my job and that's what i really love doing so you know i had a really hard day and 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 i called my wife and talked to her about it and she was out working on something and uh, so we talked for a while and and the thing that's like a particular interest to me in that situation is you can cut yourself off you can cut your process off you know, you're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to be stressed. You're not allowed to grieve, you know, because all these things are going well for you. And then pretty soon all those things aren't going so well anymore, you know, because you've stopped your natural healing process so many times out of this feeling of, I don't, I don't deserve to feel bad. You know, I don't get, I don't have the right to feel bad. One of the things that's so problematic about, you know, doing something like you do, like there's, you know, there's two stories that I always think about when this topic comes up, you know, one, which was uh, relayed from Wes from the Lumineers about Bruce Springsteen, how he said to his band before every show, you didn't earn this. Like you're not entitled to this. And you see when he plays, like they go out there like they didn't earn it and they have to. Mm. And I I think about another story that I heard about uh, Chris Chelios, who used to play uh, in the NHL and how when he when the team wasn't playing well, what the coaches liked about him was he would just sit around with this look on his face. Like you people disgust me. Yeah. You guys like, I I think about how much I admire that in artists, in athletes, in people to achieve that, that humbleness, that, that it's never enough, that it's, it's just, you know, there's no way I would possibly take any of this for granted, like what you're talking about. But then when that gets applied to mental health issues, all of a sudden it, it changes. Because then yeah. that goes from being this, this wonderful motivating factor. And obviously, I don't know anything about Bruce Springsteen or Chris Chelios at this point. But it goes for, for people who are like that, who are high achievers. It goes from this wonderful thing to being horrible because you wind up avoiding and suppressing negative emotion, which makes it like 10 times worse. Right. And, you, and you know, it's easy to assume that, that your, your mental health journey, for lack of a better term, uh, and, and your career journey you know, happen at a similar trajectory for similar reasons, but they're so different, you know, that I think the laziness of compare, comparing those two, and everybody's guilty of it, you know, is what winds up getting us into trouble. You know, if you're successful as a musician or an athlete or whatever, anything, whatever you do, you know, you work really hard, you get really lucky, you get to this position where you're successful, your job then is to earn what you already have. Now, when it comes to, to, you know, your mental health, that's not a gift. You haven't been given the gift of your own psychological health or, or well-being. You don't have to pay off a debt in that situation. You actually have to build something, you know, that you can live in from the ground up. I feel like I already have a house, you know, metaphorically. My career is this house that I have been given, and it's a wonderful thing, and now I have to take care of it, you know, my my psychological health is not that way. It starts out very small and, and with a lot of holes in the roof. And my job as I go through my life is to make it more solid and more sound. Which is in some ways exactly the opposite of what as a society we're taught. Because I know like living in New York City, and I'm sure that this, you know, happened for you just as a, as a touring musician. I mean, it really winds up being how much of your well-being can you sacrifice for this? How many nights of sleep are you willing to go without how many crappy meals how many days without exercise how many hanging out with your friends you know how many events are you willing to give up so that you can be successful and i mean look just think about a a a very standard successful touring musician i mean you're talking about days and days and days on the road 
that you're yeah. expected to do. I mean, by, by definition, almost the implicit ask there is, well, how much, how much of your, of your well being are you willing to give up for that? It's tricky, man. Cause it's, it's, you know, untethered capitalism. It's, it's really just, just greed. I mean, a lot of what we're taught in this country, a lot of countries are this way, but you know, this is the one I know the, the best, but you know, a lot of what we're taught is your, your worth is how hard you're willing to work. And as, as a motivating tool for people who are trying to climb out of whatever situation they're in, I understand that, you know, if, if I'm trying to inspire kids to be better and do better, I understand saying, you know, the harder you work, the better your life's going to go. But, but that's a healthy form of capitalism. We're way beyond a healthy form of that. We're to the point where the people at the very top are convincing everyone else that their only value is, is how much money they can bring in for the people at the very top. It's obviously an easy thing for me to say, but I do not feel like my value is equal to the amount of work I'm willing to do or how hard I'm willing to work. And this is this has been a tough thing for me to dislodge from my brain because I grew up in Alabama around working class people. And, you know, my parents worked very, very hard and still do. And, and you know, I had menial manual labor jobs before I became a musician professionally. And it's ingrained. It's just, it's just programmed into your mind that, you know, you're a commodity. And the work that you do is a commodity to be traded around by people who you will never meet. Now I get a little little disturbed by this advent of a, a easily accessible uh, second job situation. You know where where you have encouragement to go out and do your side hustle. You know you see all these commercials now. What's your side hustle? And it's like I understand that people need to do that, and it it, it makes sense. And yeah, you know, working multiple jobs is an honorable thing. But but I don't like convincing people that you should have to do that and that that should be the way that you live and you should get your confidence from how hard you can work for somebody else because that's just a scam. Your own idea of, of your self-worth shouldn't come from how much money can I make for somebody who I'll never meet, you know? You know, even if you look at statistical model, they start with assumptions. Like I'm assuming certain things in order to make this model work. And I think that one of the things that's very tricky is that shouldn't capitalism on some level assume that you're not destroying the person, you know, that you're not destroying the environment, that you're not destroying the, 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 the community. And I think what we're seeing now is to some degree, and I'm not necessarily anti, anti-capitalist per se, I, I, I live as a capitalist, I guess, to, yeah. to whatever degree. You can participate in the system and still criticize it. That's okay too. Right. But what's healthy capitalism? Mm-hmm. You know, what's sustainable capitalism? And I think that the mental health part of this is something that I'm glad, you know, people like yourself, and I'm glad that people are starting to talk about, which is this idea of like, look, like there's a limit to how much you can do that thing that you're talking about where you drive people into the ground. It's only going to go so far and then the whole thing's going to come down. Right, right. Yeah, people are either going to, you know, go French on you and start throwing up the guillotines or everybody's just going to die and you're not going to have any more human capital to play with. We had a good idea and the way we set it all up, you know, worked real well for certain people. But then once we started uh, combining that with newer ideas and then the idea of greed running amok, you know, first you look at it and you say, well, this system hasn't allowed everybody to 
live the American dream and, and we need to do something about that. And then you kind of start working on that. And then the people who have been really profiting off of this say, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. Everything was fine. Everything was, let's, let's all unify, you know, let's get together. Let's not, let's not start problems. Uh, if we just be nice to each other, everything will be great. And of course, that's what they say because they don't want anything to change. You know, really to me, the only thing that I, I'm not particularly optimistic about you know, that, that and the climate, uh, you know, you look at those and think, yeah, I don't think we're going to pull this off, you know, <laughs> just as a, as a civilization, I don't think we're going to pull this off. But there's a couple ways of looking at that. Like my wife is somebody who, who looks at, at life and sees something that's relatively insignificant. You know, I, I can't really make much of a blip on the radar here. My whole life doesn't really add up to anything uh, in the long term scheme. And, and she looks at that and it makes her sad and it, it brings her down. And I look at that and it makes me feel great. You know, none of what I'm doing means anything. So I can't fuck this all up. And I don't know if that's just because I come from the perspective of somebody as a, as a recovering alcoholic who has fucked a lot of things up and she's not an addict. And so, you know, I look at it and think, man, I can't break this vase that is civilization. It's not, it's not down to me. So I can have some fun. But, um, you know, I think that perspective really, really helps me because you just work to work, you know, and, and you, and you do the right thing because it's the right thing. And the reward of it is the fact that you did the right thing. And that comes down to the way you, you deal with your work, the way you deal with, uh, the people who work for you or the people you work for, you know, it just, it's, it's everything for me. And one of the things that you said that I think is really important there is, and I think there's a, there's a parallel here in terms of kind of on an intrapersonal and then on a socio political level is the idea that you can be in a system and still criticize it and question it. And that is something that I think really taps into what happens with the stigma of mental illness to a degree is that people feel like, well, I can't be okay, quote unquote, I can't be normal and still look at the darkness that might be in me or the places or the things that aren't working. They see that as, as two totally different things. You know, either right. you're doing okay or you're taking care of problems. And mm -hmm. on, a, on an interpersonal level, that's horrible, horrible. You know, it's exactly the opposite. And I think people like, like yourself are starting to say that on a socio, I mean, look, there've been people who've been talking out against government and, and systems forever. So it's, it's, but, but I think people are more recognizing the fact that we can't do this if there's no way of criticizing ourselves. You know, the idea of saying like, you know, oh, um, I can only be patriotic if I do everything that I'm told, you know, that's, that, that system doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And, and, you know, that's another trick that they use to keep the, to keep the system that they're profiting off of propped up. Well, I, I guess one thing I'm kind of curious about now that we're on this topic, a lot of people have trouble making the connection between those socio-political systems and then what happens for us on a direct mental health level. You know, I know, I know a lot of people, now, you know, I've said over the last few years, well, they can feel the stress of, of the previous administration. And, and look, there's some people who, who may feel stressed now because of the new administration, you know, and I'm just kind of curious from, from your perspective, how you see those different sociopolitical issues that some people would say, oh, that's out here influences people on a, on a more core mental health level. Well, the worse things get, the closer they get to your own home. If a leader is very just particularly terrible, you'll feel it. 
you know, in some way or another. And I think that's happened for the first time in the last four years with a whole lot of uh, Americans is, oh, I was able to ignore politics, you know, until my dad got sick from this virus that we should have handled better, you know, and now my dad is dead and that is political. And uh, the thing, what they don't tell you is, for, for somebody, it's all political. The education system is political for a lot of people. The, the clean water, the, the roads, the housing, the, the minimum wage, it's all political. There are some people who get up every day and live their life based on what the rest of us call politics. And it's, it's so easy for us to ignore it because until it gets just horrifyingly awful, it doesn't affect some of us. But the lower you are on that totem pole of, of wealth and, and status, the quicker those politics come to your front door. And I think the only way to me for us to make any sort of progress and, and really do the right thing, the only way for us to do the right thing is to try to keep in mind that if it's not good enough for you, it's not good enough for somebody else. That's the trick. And we all know that. I think at, a, at our core, I think we all, part of being a human is knowing that just because this isn't affecting me, it doesn't mean it's not wrong. And, you know, I think it's just, it's just easy to ignore it. You know, everybody wants to believe that they have earned what they have. And, and this causes a big problem to me because like we were talking about, about Bruce, you know, um, reminding his band or his crew or whoever that you don't deserve this. You know, this is a privilege. Basically he's saying this is a privilege and, and you need to treat it as such. And, you know, that applies to almost everything. I mean, there are people who aren't even carried to term because their mothers don't have the nutrition that they need to have the baby. That's the bottom. That's the true bottom. Anything else, you've been given some privilege. And I know a lot of people where I grew up, you know, they don't have a lot of different ways to source pride in themselves. You know, so they take pride in the fact that, you know, well, maybe I haven't made it very far, but considering where I started, you know, I've done a good job. And that I understand. But when you start buying into this idea that you came from the bottom, you're making a big mistake because you don't, you haven't seen the bottom. You know, I, I remember the first time I went on tour in my early 20s and, and you know, rode through the Navajo Nation and, and saw the way folks were living out there. I thought, man, this this is something that I didn't know existed in America. You know, I thought this kind of life was reserved for what, what people call third world countries. And, you know, it was right there, just smack dab in the middle of their big old, beautiful, shining city on a hill. And, uh, you know, that changed my perspective. I thought, you know, my trailer in my grandmother's yard wasn't all that bad. You know, we had we had a lot compared to some other people. And at the bottom of it all is this idea that I think we all share if we don't ignore it, which is, you know, if it's not good enough for them, it's not good enough for me. You know, if it's not good enough for me, it's not good enough for them. It's 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 this kind of golden rule, you know. Yeah. And I think that it's so hard what you're talking about, you know, because and, and you're seeing just how many things are in play in that one kind of interaction. There's, you know, as an example, like I'll take myself, like I work, I have a private practice. It's in theory, uh, an independent business, but you know, my parents went to public college, you know, I went to public school, you know, I, I worked at one point at a public school and, mm -hmm. and, and the layers, and that's, that's just the beginning of the entitlement, but the layers that I had in order to now get to this point 
are, are too many to too many to count. And I can see for people why it can be tough to accept the fact that you know you feel like oh I I did it you know I worked hard and I whatever. And just to let people know that that's not inconsistent with acknowledging that you were helped along the way. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's not. And and you know for me, I figured out at one point that it's easier to to say I don't know what I deserve you know, or I don't, I don't know exactly what percentage of this is due to my hard work and perseverance and what percentage of this is due to the privilege that I've been afforded. I don't have to know that, you know, that's not something that is important to me personally when I'm trying to draw self-worth, you know, to me, the question is how have I handled what I've been given? And so every time I start thinking about, well, do I deserve this? Because you know, I'm going to tell you, things happen to me on a regular basis that are shocking, you know, positive things, things that I, I wind up taking days for me to wrap my head around. How did this just happen? This is amazing. You know, I used to spend a lot of time thinking why rather than how I would think why, why did this happen to me and not somebody else, you know, um, and eventually I came to this idea that I'm never going to get that answer. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And it's so, so hard for humans to wrap their brain around the fact that they're never going to get an answer because we're wired to look for answers. You know, why does this wheel turn? Why is fire hot? Why does this, you know, plant poison me and this one tastes great? And, and you know, that's, that's just evolutionary. But at some point, I think you have to sort of force yourself to evolve to the point to where you don't ask why about everything. You just ask, well, what now? What do I do now, you know, to make the best of this? That's one of the toughest things, you know, when people who struggle with mental illness, because the truth of the matter is we actually objectively can never say definitively, this is why you're depressed. This is why you, you suffer from alcoholism. We can't all, I mean, it would be nice if we could, but we, we, we can't look at something and say, oh, there's the the, the tear in your muscle, you know? And so, so much of what we do is based on kind of a, a basic hypothesis of why. And then the next question is, okay, well now what? And that's, that's very, very, very tough for people to grab onto because it's, you know, you're, you're living with it all the time. You're looking, it's like, well, I, you know, I, I drank just as much as these guys. How come I wound up, you know, with alcoholism? You know, right. I, I, I went through the same life as this, how come I'm depressed? And it can be, I, I think that it's, it's good to ask the questions as a, as a as self-knowledge, but I do think kind of like what you're saying, getting to that point where you say, okay, now what do I do is so, so important. I think people can get really caught up in that why. And it's just unfortunate because objectively, we're never going to know. No. And we watch so many movies where there's a, uh, an ending that tidies itself up, you know, and, and, and our culture is so, so geared towards the ending, you know, and I wish there were more things out there that didn't end things that just stopped, you know, I wish we could just consume art and entertainment that just, well, that's the end of this part of the story. You'll just have to wonder what happens next. Cause that's how your life is. You know, you don't get to tie up all those loose ends and you don't get all the answers for all those questions. And, and, it, it's it's so hard for people to accept it, you know. Um, but man, if you can, if you can somehow figure out a way to just get just ten percent closer 
to being okay with not having all those answers, uh, it, it's a it's a beautiful way to walk around in the world because that puts you in the moment. Anything to me that puts me more in the moment is is beneficial, you know, in some way and, and positive in some way. I feel like a lot of, and, and obviously I'm not qualified to make any kind of real statement on this, but I feel like a lot of problems with my own, I'll put it that way, my own mental health have been due to the fact that I'm existing in the past or in the future. In rehab, there was one really, there were a lot of really great counselors in there, but one of the people that I felt like resonated with in a certain way had a habit of saying, you know, keep your head and your ass in the same place. And this has served me so well over the years, you know, because you know, you get so afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow and you get so remorseful of what happened yesterday and you just forget to exist. And so I, I work really hard to stay where I am at all times, you know, and that that's helped me a whole lot because then you don't look so much for answers. You know, you just you just try to exist and try to absorb what's right in front of you. Now, one thing that that some people will wonder about, you know, because your career to a large degree is whether intentionally or not is, is very, it's certainly moving in a direction, you know what I mean? It's moving in a positive direction. I mean, you've been a successful musician for, for quite some time. And I guess the, the thing that some people kind of wonder about is how do you move forward while not thinking about the past or the future? You know, well, you like, think about turning the wheels. You don't think about moving the vehicle. If you have a system in place that involves your only action being making the best decisions, then the, the vehicle will move itself. If you're making decisions, period, if you're making choices, you'll make the right one more often than not. You know, when I got into trouble was when I was allowing the choices to make themselves, you know. Um, and I find that if, if I make a decision and I do it with with awareness and and you know, with care, then usually it's the right one. I mean, way, way more often than not, you know, and I think it's that way for everybody. I think, you know, you get so concerned with moving the vehicle forward that you forget to turn the wheels. And for me, I'm just turning the wheels. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I talk about this when I'm talking about mental health and philosophy, even with my friends and, and sometimes in interviews, but Nick Saban, the coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, you know, he said something the other day at halftime at the uh, national championship game. He said, there's no scoreboard as far as I'm concerned. And this was his interview as he's walking off the field at halftime and he's winning by three touchdowns in the national championship. It couldn't be in a better possible position as a college football coach. He's passing Bear Bryant on the list of, you know, all-time national championships. That day he's passing Bear Bryant. And he says, there's no scoreboard as far as I'm concerned. This is why he's that good. You know, he obviously there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the really big ones is the fact that he plays the game. And he, he encourages the students that he's coaching to play the game and play the game as well as they can on every snap in every moment and not focus on their opponent and not focus on the scoreboard. That will all take care of itself. 
And so I just, I try to try to live my life that way. You know, when I'm writing a song, I try to write the best possible song that I can write in that very moment. And if I feel myself thinking about a target, who am I aiming? Who am I writing this for? How is this going to be received? I cut that shit off immediately. And I think this is a distraction. This is not serving your work. And I do that when it comes to my own uh, mental health too. You know, if I, if I sit around thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to respond to this when it happens six weeks from now? No, that's a distraction. You do your work, be here. I know when I work with people, I kind of talk to them about, you know, the idea that you want to be in that place the majority of the time, but, but whether or not you want to use the metaphor of a house or a car or whatever it may be, there is something though. I'm, I'm kind of curious, just a, from your perspective about setting up the, the context, setting up the structure. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, Alabama football, that structure is already set up such that if you play the game, certain things will happen. Right. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, whether you want to talk about your own personal, how you do it or, or how you think other people should do it. How do you set up that broader structure so that you can then say, okay, now, based on what I got set up, if I'm in the moment, I can assume that the car is going to go where it needs to go, but I, but I can back off from that. Cause I feel like a lot of people where they make the mistake is they don't get themselves set up in a structure that works. And then they're in the moment coping actually isn't, isn't as effective if that makes sense. Oh, right. Right. Well, in all honesty, when it comes to the, the original setting up of the structure, that's where I'm the most fortunate, you know, that's something that I've don't know a whole lot about because when I was a kid, I had people who cared about me around and I had something that I could do that I loved more than anything else, you know? And so I never had to say, you know, I need to practice today. I just, if I wasn't doing something else, I played the guitar and, and sang and that's what I did all the time. And, uh, you know, I didn't really have to set up the structure for myself. So that's kind of above my pay grade to tell you the truth. I do at some level feel like though, even when you are setting up that structure, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the question of how do I build a house rather than how do I hammer in a stud? How do I make a roof rather than how do I uh, nail in a shingle? How do I build a wall rather than how do I hang a piece of sheetrock? I think personally, the smaller, the smaller the frame, the better it's going to work, you know, but you have to have confidence that, you know, if I put all these pieces of sheetrock in the right place, eventually I'm going to have a good looking wall. One of the things that I think for some people works about recovery programs like AA or NA is that that's all in a way set up in, in the way that you're describing, like your family and, and your, your skills were already kind of set up. You know, that that system is already in place. And if you kind of say like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to you know kind of submit myself to this you know, it, it does become easier to be in the moment. I am kind of curious if you, if you feel comfortable just from a recovery perspective, do you have a, a system? Is there, are you doing a recovery program? Is it treatment? Like, and if you don't I feel did. comfortable, we don't, we don't. No, no, I'm not talking about that. After, after uh, I went to rehab, I did uh, AA based recovery thing and, and, and went to meetings and, and participated in that kind of thing. And then after a while I got a, uh, a therapist, you know, that I meet with regularly every time, no matter where I am, if I've, you know, FaceTimed with her from all over the world, uh, even before we had to FaceTime with everybody. But, you know, it's sort of transferred from that, you know, because 
it's tough to talk about because it, you know my way doesn't work for everybody and and it's it's very you know you, you, the, the the path is 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 different you know but for me i got to a point where i felt like okay i've dealt with the reasons why i wasn't able to deal with the reasons why you know i've i've made it so you know using the aa recovery system i have made it so i can deal with the reasons i became an alcoholic in the first place um, so now i need to deal with those reasons with somebody who's more trained in a broader perspective to do that and you know this really happened because i could afford it because i was lucky enough to where i could you know i could afford to have a therapist with a with a phd you know and go see her really often so i took advantage of that that's not the case for everybody but i also know that you know there are some people in some of those rooms that know as much about life as anybody with a phd knows you know there's some sponsors that I've been around and talked to who, you know, really, really have it down. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big non-believer in the power of a PhD or an advanced mm -hmm. degree. Um, yeah. You know, maybe, maybe that's from having one. I just, I don't, I don't, you know, it's like, I, I appreciate my training and I feel like it's given me certain insights, you know, as, as I've talked about with people before the idea that uh, that means that I know more about something than someone else that's that's a that's a road to disaster quite yeah, frankly because if anything it will tell you how much bullshit someone will put up with you know if you have a two-year degree you'll put up with two years worth of bullshit if you have a four-year degree you know so when somebody's going to hire you they're like this guy has been going to school for 12 years he's going to put up with all kinds of bullshit this is the perfect person for this job <laughs> I, I got nothing to say on that. I think that's an excellent, that's an excellent description of what's happening. I mean, you know, just, just bringing it back a little bit to the, to the political stuff, the more people that we can help make it so that they can just have to be in the moment and do their thing, the better the, this will go. There you go. There you go. You know? that's, it, that's a very it, good point because it's supposed to work that way. That is the American dream. If everybody gets to a point where they're just allowed to make decisions and things aren't happening to them all the time, then I think we've done a good job as a civilization. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the first things I learned about doing group therapy is that the best therapy session is when nobody even remembers that I was in the room, mm -hmm. you know, like that's, that's when I know I'm doing you set it up. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm creating a context where people could talk. I should not be, a prominent part of this but you know I, I appreciate you talking about all these different issues and 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 bringing them together because i think you know look we need we need more mental health advocates in general who are just talking about these issues but then people who can also bring in the different connections in society because look this isn't going to get better only from people you know kind of from within themselves like that's that's a big part of it you know someone yeah. being like oh i i'm willing to look at what's going on with me i I'm going to maybe go get help. But it's like you said, there are a lot of sociopolitical forces in place that that affect people's health and well-being. And we got to look at that if we want a comprehensive solution. Yes, we have to. When some people argue for for a smaller government, um, you know, I'm at, at heart, I'm all about a smaller government, but we need them in the room right now. And when the time comes when they can leave the room, and we can all be allowed to make those decisions for ourselves. When the context is provided for everyone to thrive, then 
the government's done their job. They can back off. They can get out of the way, you know. But at this point, the context is there for somebody like me, but it's not there for everybody. And I find it very fulfilling personally for me to talk about these things and try to understand it and try to make it that way, you know, because we could have a utopian society, you know, and it doesn't mean that everybody's going to succeed. That's not the point. The point is that context where the government can leave the room and say, all right, now we're all sitting in the same size chair. You know, we can all see the, the chalkboard at the same angle. Everybody can read what's on the chalkboard. Go ahead and learn. But until that happens, we need help. Well, listen, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. It's been so great talking with you. The stuff that you're doing is fantastic, and I appreciate you stepping up. Thank you. Uh, You know, it it helps me sleep at night and uh, help me enjoy my life a little bit more. But I appreciate you having me on the show. It was a joy to talk with you. All right. Take care. Thanks. You too. So there it is. Jason Isbell talking about how he has approached his recovery from alcoholism and the social, economic, and political forces that he thinks may impact our mental health as a society. There's so much to potentially take away from the conversation with Jason, but one thing that I want to highlight is that when we are talking about a global mental health crisis, it's not enough to have people just fend for themselves as they manage their well-being, because there are so many factors that have a powerful influence on our individual mental health. The stressors we face, the value society places on working nonstop and making more money, the stigma that people face when they struggle with mental illness, and the ability to get the care we need. And we need to engage all aspects of society as stakeholders in the mental health crisis, government, businesses, religious and cultural organizations, to start asking the tough question of how do we help people optimize their lives without destroying their mental and physical health. And we need to look at the disparities in our society where some people have access to the things they need to support their mental health while others do not. Because if all we care about is getting people to work as hard as they can without any consideration for their mental and physical well-being, we will ultimately build unsustainable economic, social, and political models. And I'm encouraged that there are more politicians and more businesses who are recognizing that optimizing mental and physical health isn't the enemy of a productive society. It is the foundation that ultimately allows us to thrive. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project, which is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at The Crossroads. Consequence Podcast Network.